0: From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. A quick victory in Colorado Tuesday night for Senator Bernie Sanders, but nationally stiff competition from Vice President Joe Biden. My colleague Avery Lill was in Pueblo as results came in. She'll have a report from a former print shop, aka Democratic Party headquarters. Then, the road to the convention. Plus, more coronavirus questions answered. And later, if you invite Vicki Greger over for a party, she probably won't peer into your medicine cabinet. Instead, it's more likely that...
1: I have found the record collection to see what everybody, you know, has in their home and saying, can we put this one on?
0: She has spun records here in the Springs for decades and joins us to talk about the growth of the Southern Colorado music scene. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, reporting this week from Colorado Springs. Super Tuesday gave us clarity on Wednesday. What had been a crowded Democratic primary field now looks very much like a two-person race, even more so with Michael Bloomberg dropping out this morning. So what might the road to the conventions look like? We'll get some analysis coming up, but we'll start in Pueblo, a fascinating place politically, Pueblo County has more registered Democrats than Republicans, yet in 2016, voted for Donald Trump. My colleague Avery Lill was there for Super Tuesday.
2: The Pueblo Democratic Party headquarters is housed in an old print shop. Mary Beth Corsentino said the Republicans call it a bunker, but the Democrats call it home. Instead of windows, its walls are lined with old campaign signs and handmade posters from protests about climate change and immigration policy. About 50 people gathered last night to watch the Super Tuesday results come in. Bernie Sanders won Colorado overall, but Joe Biden had a lot of support at this party. Shea Donahue is a retired pipe fitter. I think that he can really keep his momentum going from this point on. I mean, Bernie's great. I can see why he would win Colorado. You know, many people are progressive and excited about the potential, but Biden shows an ability to connect with people and to get things done. He's a person that will bring us together. And even the Bernie supporters, I think, will see the value in supporting him better than Trump. Mike Bloomberg's supporters were also vocal, both at the watch party and at a downtown polling center earlier in the day. In fact, in Pueblo, Bloomberg ended the night just a point and a half behind Sanders and slightly ahead of Biden. Here's Mayor Nick Gratisar about why he voted for Bloomberg.
3: He needs to enact some policies that redistribute the wealth a little bit so that we have a more equitable economic situation. Uh, Pueblo used to have a very, very vibrant middle class when the union was strong. It could wrestle that money away from the mill. Uh, Now the union's not as strong. There's not as many people there. Most of the other employers are not unionized. And so as a result of that, we've got this income inequality that uh, has really, I think, caused a lot of harm to our economic system. And I hope that he'll take a look at that, do some targeted tax cuts sort of like Bill Clinton did, and try to put some money in the pockets of the middle class. Because if you put it there, they'll spend it. You give it to rich people, they've got everything they need right now. They're not going to spend it. But you give it to the middle class, they're going to spend it. They're going to buy boats and cars and trailers and motorcycles and stuff that uh, creates a demand for service.
2: Now, I know that there are some folks who see some irony in asking a billionaire to reconcile income inequality. How do you reconcile it?
3: Well, because I think he he started with nothing. He started with nothing. He built that himself. I think he recognizes how uh, lucky he is to have that kind of money. And I think he wants to use that money to help other people. And I think he's said that, you know, his taxes ought to be raised. And that's what we need to do. We need to raise the tax on the very, very wealthy. They should pay a lot more in taxes and have tax cuts for the middle class, put that money back in their pockets. And I think he'll do that if he's elected.
2: It was actually during that conversation that the results came in. Sanders won Colorado.
3: Well, uh, he wouldn't have been my first choice, but uh, believe me, uh, if it's him and Donald Trump, it's going to be Bernie Sanders for me. Yeah, I think that uh, he's a much more realistic candidate uh, and much more sympathetic to the working men and women in the city of Pueblo than uh, Donald Trump is. So he'll have my full support if he's the nominee.
2: Sanders supporters and environmental activists Roz and Manny de Rituri are thrilled that their candidate won Colorado. But they're worried about what could happen if none of the candidates get a majority of the delegates and there's a brokered Democratic National Convention. They say if they get a sense that the party doesn't treat Sanders fairly, it's going to
4: be ugly. If you I think th- it was bad before 2016,
2: it would be awful. will revolt. I mean, I wouldn't not vote. I'd probably it's, write him in or something. I don't know. But a, I wouldn't want to facilitate Trump's re-election either. It's, it's so urgent it's to a get rid of Trump. R- yes. Yes, it is. And we will probably have to vote blue, but Under yes, duress. Under duress. As the DeLisa tourists looked toward the DNC, other voters were disappointed their candidates were out before their ballots were even counted. Derek Stoll turned in his ballot for Pete Buttigieg two weeks ago, before Buttigieg dropped out.
5: I was really excited to vote for Pete, and then when I found out two days before the primary, I was absolutely devastated. And so that's why I really feel that we need to have the ranked choice voting, um, because I think that Pete would have been my first choice. I firmly believe that Warren would have been my second choice, and I feel that Bernie would have been my third choice.
2: For all the enthusiasm for Democratic candidates at the watch party and the polls, I asked voters what they feel is different this year than in 2016, when Pueblo County voted for Trump. Here's Eve Muniz-Valdez.
1: We do not run in the Trump circles. So no, we haven't really talked to Trump people that are saying they're going to vote differently. But I think the experiences that we've had over the past few years, um, it's over the top, and it's frightening. It's dysfunctional. It's way out of bounds. And I think it's just frightening to so many people.
2: But that's not what I heard from George Rivera when we sat down over an order of fries at the Country Kitchen restaurant earlier in the day. He says... He's even more excited to vote for Trump this year than he was in 2016.
5: Making America great again, that's just not a slogan for Donald Trump. He believes that in his soul. And a lot of people won't give him that because they feel like he's a divider and he's, he's uh, just in people's face and so on and so forth. But if you really look at what he does and what he's gotten accomplished, because he does what he believes... And he believes in America the way I believe in America.
2: Rivera's confident Trump supporters will turn out in Pueblo again this year to face whichever of the Democratic candidates gets the nomination. Democrats hope to motivate their supporters to do the same. With help from Claire Cleveland, I'm Avery Lill, CPR News.
0: And once again, Michael Bloomberg dropping out of the race this morning. Let's get some perspective now from political scientist Seth Maskett. Of the University of Denver, he's writing a book about the run-up to the 2020 primaries. Hello again, Seth. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. Would you safely call this a two-person race now? And if so, does it remind you of the dynamics of 2016 on the Democratic side?
6: We're pretty close to a two-person race at this point. Um, you know, particularly given uh, you know you have Elizabeth Warren, who had some significant rep- uh, support, but really seems to have underperformed lately. Um, it's it's getting down to two-person race. And yeah, at that point, it becomes, 2016 becomes a pretty good comparison where you have an enthusiastic group of people supporting Bernie Sanders and then uh, much of the rest of the party really coordinating around someone else. You know, it was Hillary Clinton four years ago. It looks like Joe Biden right now. Senator
0: Bernie Sanders won Colorado early in the night, and he won Colorado in 2016, back when we had caucuses. It's interesting because when Colorado switched to semi-open primaries, meaning unaffiliateds could choose to send in either party's ballot, the conventional wisdom, Seth, was that it would lead to moderation. Uh, But many voters felt the burn in both scenarios. Does that blow conventional wisdom out of the water?
6: Well, unaffiliated can mean a lot of different things, right? Um, You know, Bernie Sanders has traditionally done well um among people who are not t- but people who are on the left but are not very well tied to the democratic party people who haven't been always comfortable calling themselves democrats and that describes a lot of colorado's unaffiliated um who are not necessarily the most moderate voters um the unaffiliated in colorado we've seen over the last couple of years they have tended to lean toward the left as they tend to prefer democratic ballots democratic candidates Um, But they're not necessarily as strongly wedded to the Democratic Party. So in some ways, that was kind of a a good constituency for Sanders. Hmm. We can say that primaries resulted in far greater turnout than caucuses.
0: As CPR's Andy Kenney reported, the switch quintupled turnout in the Democratic primary. And that was before Election Day. So that was just in the run up of ballots being returned. Um Sanders has now done better than Biden in several western states, California the biggest, but also Utah, Nevada. Is that because he's doing well with Latino voters or something else do you think?
6: Um part of it is the Latino vote definitely, but there's there's other aspects of um you know, his just sort of appeal to Uh, to to Western state values, the sort of uh, a kind of an independent spirit um, an almost sort of a a libertarian aspect Um, uh, to the left that's, you know, kind of resistant to uh, heavy handed institutions um, that has tended to work very well uh, for Sanders supporters here.
0: It's interesting how you describe that, because I think there are a lot of people who see Bernie Sanders as big governments.
6: Right. Um, And, you know, maybe libertarianism isn't exactly the right word for it. But in some ways, it's kind of a it's kind of a a resistance to the democratic establishment and uh, those who are, you know, sort of resistant to that and resistant to kind of institutions in general, uh, but still very favorable uh, for kind of a progressive uh, view toward public policy. I I think that has been really consistent with Colorado. That's been consistent in the California vote. And and, and he's done well in, in those kind of environments.
0: Seth Maskett, were you surprised Vice President Joe Biden, um, who came in second, never held a real campaign event in Colorado beyond fundraisers?
6: Um, Yes, it was really kind of fascinating and kind of an indication of how little infrastructural support he had up until very recently. Um, He was, you know, despite having a fair amount of uh, the party, uh, broadly speaking, behind him, he was kind of lagging in fundraising, and he was kind of picking and choosing where he could actually do campaign events, where he could hold rallies, where he could run ads. He really couldn't be competitive everywhere. And surprisingly, um, his vote showed up in a lot of places, even places where um, he hadn't had much of a presence. He, he did very well. He actually won in, in Minnesota, despite uh, devoting very little campaign uh, resources there. And. He did better here than originally expected uh, just a few days ago in Colorado. Of course, he, he, still, uh, he still lost the state. Um, but, yeah, I was I was kind of surprised to see him, you know, he'd more or less ceded the state as of a few days ago and, and just had not made much of an effort here.
0: Much of the attention has been on the Democratic primary. But as you look at Republican turnout, any surprises there? And do you think that fundamentally... The general election comes
6: down to which party can turn out more of its voters. Um, Republican turnout for Donald Trump has been fairly strong. I think there was some question, uh, you know, going into some of the early state contests in Iowa and New Hampshire, whether we would see some kind of Trump resistance uh among republican voters um you know that is you know most republican office holders have been very supportive of donald trump but you know was there sort of any constituency for uh, an alternative path forward for the party and that's why you had people like uh like bill weld running that's why you had people like joe walsh running and that vote just has not materialized um i you know Mm. i think uh i had spoken with uh joe walsh shortly before the iowa caucuses uh, out there and Uh, I think he had been hoping for something like 10 percent of the vote, just as kind of a signal that there was a that there was an alternate voice in there. He got like one percent of the caucus vote there. Uh, He dropped out shortly thereafter. Um, You know, Weld got under five percent yesterday. So that, you know, the the signal there is that those who are in the Republican Party are very strongly uh, in Donald Trump's camp at this point. And, you know, sort of regardless how the rest of the year goes, it's going to be um, a, a very strongly polarized electorate. Um, you know, the the overwhelming bulk of Republicans is going to back Trump in the fall. The overwhelming bulk of Democrats is going to back, uh, you know, whoever the Democratic nominee is, presumably Joe Biden at this point. Um, and there will be, you know, the struggle will be over a handful of swing voters in the middle. But, um, you know, we haven't seen a... Um a major party nominee get less than forty-five percent of the vote or of the major party vote uh in the last few decades. And and that's going to continue. It's it's uh you know, we're it's a pretty polarized presidential electorate right now.
0: We have just a few seconds here, Seth Maskett, but you sounded pretty confident in saying that Democrats would get behind the nominee, whoever that is. doesn't that fly in the face of some of what we saw in 2016? What makes you so confident in just the last few moments?
6: Well, in 2016, we saw about 90 percent of Democratic voters uh, vote for Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee. Uh, Ninety percent of Republican voters voted for Donald Trump, Uh, despite all the concerns raised about those candidates, all their their high negatives. Um, you know, partisans really rallied for their nominee. Uh, that, that was one of the big lessons coming out of 2016. I, I, I see very little reason to think that won't happen in 2020 as well.
0: Seth Maskett leads the Center on American Politics at DU. There are still no known cases of coronavirus in Colorado, but the state health department is now testing people they believe to be at high risk. Let's sort through more questions about the virus, allay fears where it is possible to do so. Dr. Michelle Barron joins us once again. She's an expert on infectious diseases. Dr. Barron, welcome back to the program.
4: Thank you, Ryan.
0: Okay, so no known cases of the virus in Colorado yet, But the state has these kits and is testing people. Do you think it's just a matter of time before the first case?
4: I do think it's a matter of time, just given the amount of spread that we're seeing in the United States and certainly throughout the world. For the amount of travel people do and the potential for people to not have symptoms at the beginning of when they have this virus, I definitely think we'll see someone at some point in the near future.
0: Okay, more on testing in a moment. I just want to quickly run through some questions that I would probably be asking my doctor at this point. Is there any sense that if you get coronavirus and survive, that you'd be less likely to get it again? We don't have a vaccine, but are our bodies developing it in a way?
4: Yeah. So similar to the flu, you might have some temporary immunity. um, But because there's so many different coronaviruses and the virus itself can adapt to your body and change, the new one that you potentially encounter in the future may not be similar enough for your immune system to recognize. And so you may get sick once again.
0: Okay. Not not what the answer I wanted to hear, but I appreciate (laughs) The straight dope here. Any any sense that um, this is likely to circulate annually, be a sort of seasonal thing like the flu?
4: It's a great question. Certainly, coronaviruses do circulate normally through the fall and winter months, um, and so we wouldn't necessarily expect that this would be different, but we do know with some of the other viruses that were sort of similar in nature to um, COVID-19, like SARS and MERS, SARS disappeared. And so we just don't know yet.
0: Okay. But there is at least the possibility that this thing also vanishes into thin air
4: it's possible certainly i don't know that that's realistic but we just like i said with sars it happened it popped up caused havoc in many parts of the world specifically in toronto and then since 2002 we haven't seen it again
0: all right i feel as a journalist like i'm walking a very sensitive line between wanting to keep people informed wanting to allay them where it's possible and also not wanting to panic people But I read a story, I think in the Washington Post just last night, about how this is unfolding in Italy, where hospitals are full up with people, many of them developing pneumonia. Healthcare workers themselves are getting sick and dealing with that as well. They're calling in nursing and doctor reinforcements in Italy. Is that the sort of scene we should be prepared for in Colorado.
4: That is the scene that we're preparing for in Colorado. Obviously, we hope that doesn't happen, but that's part of the dis- disaster management planning that everyone does in that you plan for the worst case scenarios and have those contingency plans in place. And then if it doesn't happen, you're, you're great. If it happens, then you're not scrambling trying to figure out Oh, goodness, what do we do? We don't have nurses. We don't have doctors. What do we do? Where do we put these people? All of that's been sort of planned out as best as you can, and then you can navigate from there.
0: What would prevent a scenario like the one I described in Italy from happening in Colorado?
4: Um, Without knowing the specifics of what's going on in Italy, I'm sort of hesitant to fully speak on that level, but I can tell you that... um, a lot of the precautions that we know about, we we're able to fulfill here. I don't know what status they have in terms of having the proper masks or what kind of ventilation they have in their hospitals or even the design. And certainly mm. I can tell you a lot of our hospitals were built with the idea of having to contain infectious diseases, whether it's COVID-19 or MRSA, or, which is methicillin-resistant staphylococcus, or some of the other bad bugs that we see.
0: Yeah, MRSA. It's vicious stuff. Uh, I've had family members with it. Um, Okay, let's get to testing here. Is this just a swab? Is it a throat swab? Is it a nose swab that these kits contain?
4: It can be either a throat swab or a nose swab or, or both, just depending on the protocol that you've implemented at your facility.
0: And, you know, the t- state only has a limited number of these kits. So, how do they decide whom to test?
4: So, they have criteria that they've given all the public health from public health to the hospitals and clinics, and really want us to be judicious in terms of the testing. And we still have the ability, obviously, to consult with them and say, you know, I'm not really sure if this is really warranted. What do you think? And we have that discussion and decide whether or not it's worth testing or not.
0: And do you think it's related to someone's travel at this point, or have we moved beyond that? Is it related to how vulnerable that person might be to coronavirus?
4: Certainly the travel piece is still a big piece that we're using in Colorado at this point, and primarily because we haven't had any cases yet. And certainly that may shift where when we start seeing cases in Colorado, then it may be more, hmm, you're more vulnerable, we maybe need to monitor you a little bit more closely.
0: And would the testing and and the results lead to a kind of forensic medicine, a tracing of who that person has come into contact with? For instance.
4: Absolutely. So, right now we're still in what we would call the containment phase. And the idea behind that is if we found out someone had this, then we would want to try and find the contacts that person had been with or near and put them, yeah. p- test and put them into precautions as well, with the idea that we could contain it. And when we lose that phase where, you know, just there's just too many people where that we can no longer do that, we go to the mitigation phase, which is really going into the idea of okay, who's really at risk? Who's going to be potentially get more sick from this? Do we need to test or just tell people to stay home and manage their symptoms with remedies we normally would use for a cold?
0: And perhaps at that point, you might see even more big events canceled and school districts making uh, decisions about whether to meet. Uh, Before we go, we have less than a minute. I, I just have to ask the fundamental question. Can we say how much More lethal this is than the flu? About the same? What can we say? Just in a few seconds.
4: Um, I think that the data that's coming out certainly suggests that it's probably about the lethality of the flu, but certainly we don't have all that data yet, but it's not quite as severe as it appears, at least on the outset, from the reports we've been seeing.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Barron. I appreciate your time.
4: Always my pleasure.
0: Dr. Michelle Barron is Medical Director of Infection Prevention at UC Health. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour live from Colorado Springs with Space Command and Space Force. What the heck is the difference? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Public Radio is
7: flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And
6: I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News.
7: KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio.
6: With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms.
7: And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and
6: KRCC. See the details at CPR.org.
0: Space, as in the final frontier, has been top of mind for many in Colorado Springs in the last year or so. President Donald Trump re-established U.S. Space Command in August, basing it, at least for now, at Peterson Air Force Base. Then in December, the president launched the Space Force, the first entirely new branch of the military since the creation of the Air Force in 1947. Here's the thing. Space Command and Space Force are not the same thing. To talk us through the differences and what each means for the springs and the Pikes Peak region, Dan Boyce is back. He's CPR Southern Colorado reporter, focuses a lot on the military as part of that beat. Hi, Dan. Hey, Ryan. Talk me through this Space Force versus Space Command.
3: <sighs> yeah.
0: Um, it's
7: really easy to get confused between the two. Trust me. But in the... Simplest terms, the Space Force is a new military branch and U.S. Space Command is all the space-focused personnel from the other military branches, the Army space people, the Navy space people, etc. The Space Force, on paper, is based In the Pentagon, like the other branches, Space Command is based here in the Springs, at least for now.
0: Okay, I got it. I think I got it. Uh,
7: Good, uh, because now I'm going to confuse the heck out of everyone. So, uh, but there is a point to it. The people in the Space Force, that's the separate branch, are actually the people who used to be Air Force Space Command. So the U.S. Space Command, remember, that's the collection of the different branches. The Air Force component of the Space Command is the Space Force. So the Air Force Space Command, General John Raymond, is now the head of the Space Force. He's a member of the Joint Chiefs.
0: General Raymond is still in the Springs, even though he'll eventually move to D.C.
7: That's correct. And that move for Raymond is happening any day now. It could even be this week. Uh, meanwhile, there is heavy speculation that some or all of the Air Force bases in Colorado, with the exception of the Air Force Academy, will be renamed Space Force bases. Ah. And then finally, here's a little peek behind the curtain as as far as being a reporter goes. So uh, so like I said, ostensibly, the Space Force is based in the Pentagon, but the Space Force media line is a 719 number.
0: That's the Colorado Springs area code. That,
7: that's right, except uh, late breaking news on this, you didn't see this coming, Ryan. I tried calling yeah, yesterday. It turns out it's now been switched to a 703 number, which is an Arlington County, uh, Virginia area code. That's the Pentagon. So um, anyway, all this is to say that Space Force and Space Command, they are different entities. Uh the functional differences, though, are still really blurry. The The lines have yet to be drawn. Uh, but what is clear is the community which holds Space Command will also be deeply intertwined with the Space Force's mission.
0: Well, and I think of everything that comes along with the workforce, the economic development. Dan, talk to us about the effort to keep Space Command in Colorado.
7: So, uh, uh, you know, you have Colorado's congressional delegation. They are linking arms, presenting a united front on this saying that Colorado Springs has been the center of the military space efforts since Space Command was established the first time in the 1980s. The workforce is here locally, and there's already so much infrastructure here, and they say Space Command needs to stay.
0: And they're appealing to President Trump with that message. Uh,
7: right, and as we'll hear in a second, uh, Governor Jared Polis did as well right on uh, Air Force One. The Colorado Springs Chamber of Commerce, meanwhile, they're spending up to $350,000 on a campaign to get uh, Colorado Springs Space Command marketing, you know, right in front of the president's eyes. That could even be advertising in the D.C. area during the president's favorite TV shows. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. Talk about strategy. Uh, and part of the campaign included T-shirts at Trump's rally here.
7: Uh, it, which didn't turn out as well as they hoped. Uh So the chamber was out the morning of that rally and they were handing out these free red T-shirts with a a Space Command hashtag on them. And hopefully so, you know, the president would see the stadium full of Space Command support. You know, I'd say the interest in the shirts was was tepid and not too many people were putting them on.
0: Uh, they probably wanted to show off their Trump shirts and instead.
7: It, right. And and the chamber says it so happens the people who did try to wear them were asked to take them off by those running the rally. It just goes to show that the Trump campaign keeps this really tight uh, ship as to you know what messages are on the clothing that people in the audience are wearing. It's still, Reggie Ash, he promotes the military economy through the chamber, says keeping the command would be worth any effort they make.
6: Initially, the headquarters is going to employ about 1,500 people, and those are higher-end employees as well. Additionally, it's a military construction project approaching a billion dollars, so that means a lot. There's a lot of immediate impact with that. And then as time goes on, unified combatant commands like that tend to be magnet for industry, so more corporations will move here.
0: And Dan, I understand you recently visited a new space startup in town. Blue Stack.
7: It was started just under two years ago in the springs. And they basically do satellite data management and analytics. And and they started with four people. They're they're now at thirty people, growing, expecting to be fifty by the end of the year. And they're finishing up this, you know, swanky new first floor headquarters in one of the tall bank buildings here downtown, and that's gonna be a very visible example of the kinds of businesses and high-paying jobs that Space Command would attract. CEO Seth Harvey, he was telling me that where the command ends up permanently will have a huge impact, not only on his business, but where other similar ones will decide to start too.
3: When you are trying to build a technical solution, it is important to be right next to your customer. It is important to be right next to the operations or the problem that you're trying to solve. If that customer or that problem set moves, you're no longer geographically connected to that customer.
0: And the president, at least for now, has demurred. Is that right?
3: So
7: a lot of people thought that the reason the president was holding his recent rally in the Springs would be to specifically announce that the area was keeping Space Command. And the thought was that, you know, as much as anything, that could help Republican Senator Cory Gardner in his reelection election bid. Cory Gardner was, of course, at the rally too, but, you know, alas.
3: The governor showed up at the plane today, your governor, Democrat. No, no but in all fairness, he showed up because he wanted to lobby to see if they could get it. That's okay. That's all right. And we are going to be making that decision, Corey, when we make that decision, all
7: right? The president may still even try to get political leverage out of that announcement later this year. His campaign is investing a lot of money here, and they think the state is still in play, and he might use that later. For his part, Governor Polis said uh, his decision transcends the political divide.
6: My goal is really talking about how Colorado is the center of the space economy uh, with the strong aerospace industry, with our strong defense infrastructure, is the best possible place for space command, which we previously hosted as well. And we are right on the cusp of that decision. That's over 4,000 jobs for Colorado directly, but it's also all of the ancillary jobs making our state a continued leader in space research uh, and defense. So anything we can do, Democrats, Republicans, and it's not a partisan thing. It's not even a regional thing. Denver and Grand Junction are on board with Colorado. Springs site for Space Command. So, I mean, this is just a statewide initiative to help make our state the center for space research and jobs. We're a leader, and we can go from being a leader to being the leader in the growing space economy, and Space Command is an important part of that, and Colorado is the best place for it. Okay, we shall see
0: what happens. Dan, thanks for this explainer. Glad to be here, man. CPR's Dan Boyce reports on Colorado Springs and Southern Colorado with a particular focus on the military. An odd bit of history. Now, I'm not the first in my family to broadcast in Colorado Springs. My stepfather, Hub Byrne, attended Colorado College from 1956 to 1960. He'd been a sickly kid, and almost as soon as he got to town, he joined a gym
5: because I was six foot at 137, asthmatic. That's why I went to Colorado from Boston. That's more popular in those days. I thought, well. Instead of playing sports, I think I'm going to try to build up my body.
0: Dad says the modern life health studio in Colorado Springs transformed him.
5: It took me three years to go from 137 to 202, and I really had a great physique. I loved it. I love everything about it.
0: My stepdad was a constant presence at this gym. And the owners decided to buy ad time on a local TV station.
5: In those days, the, the late show started at ten o'clock in Colorado Springs until eleven thirty or twelve, and that sign off, that's sign off—that's it for the evening. And there was a break, fifteen-minute break between in the middle of the movie. You can buy that space. So if you want to sell carpets, and and we bought it for gym demonstrations.
0: That meant hubby, that's what I've called my stepfather since I was a little kid, that meant hubby went on TV and flexed and pumped to drum up business.
5: I didn't care about looking like Schwarzenegger or something, nothing wrong with that, but I just wanted to be a big, strong guy.
0: In the end, though, he wasn't the main attraction.
5: And we usually have Miss Pueblo or Miss Colorado, some pretty girl who, Who believes in workouts and so demonstrates things focusing on women basically.
0: My stepdad, Hubert T. Byrne, Colorado College graduate and early TV fitness promoter. I've tweeted a picture of him back then and of the gym at CPR1. She has had her finger on the pulse of Southern Colorado's music scene for three decades. Vicki Greger is music coordinator for KRCC, where she spins hand-picked music weeknights.
1: The Monday evening music mix on 91.5 KRCC. Something brand new from Robert Cray called That's What I Heard. And anything you want, I love how he just spent the last minute and a half of that song just playing his guitar, sounded so darn good. Her More job
0: is also calories. to keep up with the piles of music submissions that come to the station from Colorado and beyond. And she's going to get you plugged into the music scene in Southern Colorado. Vicki, it's nice to see you.
1: Thanks, Ryan. It's cool to be here on this side of the table and the microphone.
0: To be interviewed as opposed to hosting yourself. I know. It's a it's weird feeling a sometimes. A little bit
1: nerve-wracking.
0: We asked for 10 of your favorite songs by Southern Colorado bands... This was at the top of your list. can you tell us about
1: spirits well this is a band of amazingly talented women and uh, one of the linchpins to this band is katie perdoni who's also known as katie sleeveless and everything she touches is really well done there's just a power to uh this music and and what katie does that's undeniable
0: As you describe Katie Sleeveless of Spirits, Vicki, it occurs to me that musicians in Colorado, and maybe this is true everywhere, I'd love your sense of it, they tend to have 10 or 12 side projects. They're involved in making so much different music.
1: And that's one of the beauties of uh, paying attention to the music scene for so many years is you get to see all these transitions. You get to see where bands have tendriled off. And then come in support of each other and and kind of make new things out of uh, what used to be a separate thing. So, yeah, tracking uh, local music, especially in Colorado Springs and Pueblo, has been a, a, a journey of pure joy.
0: You've spent your entire radio career at KRCC, Vicky. here in the Springs. I'm curious how you got started as a DJ.
1: First of all, backing it way up, I'm that person who would go to parties and gatherings And instead of being social with everyone, I I have found the record collection, you know, and I'm going through to see what everybody, you know, has in their home and saying, can we put this one on? Can we put this one on? Oh, I
0: like it. So some people go through medicine cabinets. You went through record collections. Okay. (laughs) True.
1: True. There might have been a medicine cabinet back in my wild youth. But... (laughs) (laughs) Mostly records, (laughs) but that led to just a passion for music and putting it together. And I was a a fan of the station of uh, KRCC, uh, especially in the late 80s and just lived and died by uh, every DJ that was doing their thing. And they offered up a, a DJ class, which I now help teach. Uh, but back then, it was just come on in on a bunch of Saturdays, and we'll show you the ins and outs and see if you have what it takes. And
0: What is the best thing you learn, the most important thing you learn in a DJ class?
1: To be yourself. It's the hardest thing to teach. It's the hardest thing to glom onto because you're trying to... You know, be friends with the microphone and show off all your knowledge at all times. Yeah. And it's just to relax and and let this come out.
0: And you're pointing to your heart when you say let this yeah. come out. The authenticity, I think, is what I struggled with early on in radio. I felt like I had to be Mr. Broadcast, you know. I had to be the voice of God somehow. <laughs> and it's nice to get away from that and be yourself, huh?
1: It is. And that adjustment, and you probably know, all of a sudden it just happens. Something shifts inside you. So to teach that to very enthusiastic uh, students or people from the community, it's just, you got to let it happen. No. And you've got to let them hear themselves where they're like, oh my gosh, really? That's that's what I'm doing? <laughs> okay, won't do that again.
0: I understand that your first... Shift was from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m.?
1: <laughs> so uh, playing music on the radio is such a passion that when they said, yeah, we need a overnight DJ to play music, I'm like, me, me, pick me, pick me. So um, yeah, it was fun because overnight music and the audience that listens to it, very specific. It's a very uh, incredible mood that you get to set uh, because people are perhaps in altered states. People are going to sleep. People are waking up for their very early morning shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about people who bake for a living. They're going to work. So it was this idea of trying to make a little something for everybody. Um, But there was a new baby in our family. So it was one of those things where sleep just wasn't, going to be in our lives for a long time.
0: You didn't have the baby in the studio, or did you?
1: Uh, there had been a few times ah. when that happened, but, you know, you can't say to your infant, shh, <laughs> I'm about to go on, on mic. You, you must be silent.
0: You can. It's just not going to take you very far. Right. Yeah. So,
1: uh, yeah, not too much of that.
0: Okay. I think it's time to hear a bit more music before we talk about how you build playlists, because the basement at KRCC here is a record lover's dream I mean you really get the chance to curate but uh, tell us about some of your other favorites as we had you assemble this top 10 list
1: You know, for instance, I'm looking at We Are Not a Glum Lot. That's a a, We
0: Are Not a Glum Lot. Is
1: the best name ever, for one thing. You know, and that's actually taken from the big book in AA, Mm. or so I've been told. Um, And we've watched uh, those folks grow up. I mean, we're talking about talented young teenagers who stayed with it and, you know, now have grown up, gone through college, still making music, and they've rocked pretty well.
0: Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and we are getting a feel for the Southern Colorado music scene from Vicki Greger, who's music coordinator at KRCC here in Colorado Springs. Speaking of brilliant names, Vicki, Edith makes a paper chain. Uh,
1: I know. I know. Edith makes a paper chain. I'm not sure where that's from. I should ask Sarah that. But that band is so special because... They incorporate horns. Uh, One of the members actually plays in the symphony, so that sensibility comes into indie pop music that can go off into uh, old old style and have a beautiful horn section that's incredibly well-written. That's their uniqueness.
0: Vicki, the fact is a lot of playlists, especially on commercial radio, are determined by a computer or at least executed by a computer. Um, Talk to me about how you put a show together. Is it in real time? Are you kind of running to the music room at the same time the show is on the
1: air? Exactly. Uh, We're lucky in our air studio that at least the CDs are in there. There's about 19,000 CDs that are just right next to where I sit, uh, about 20,000 pieces of vinyl in the basement. So you have to be a little more prepared to do that, because that's three flights of stairs. (laughs) And you know what it's like to run up to a microphone and talk, think you're okay, and then there is no air in your body. So um, I don't prepare like some DJs do, or like I used to in the old days, where everything's written down and just, I pull about maybe 10 things, new and old, and I spend the rest of my show kind of chasing the muse.
0: What's the strangest back-to-back combination the (laughs) muse has had you create?
1: I think there was Tuvian throat singing at one time that I tried to match up with Radiohead, and it actually worked a (laughs) little better than you might think. Um, That's in very freeform days. We kind of took the freeform model, which included every sound and noise there is. And we we got a little more uh, focused on a a music mix approach. But still, if it's in our library, and it's not FCC non-compliant, play it. It's yours.
0: The music scene in Denver gets, I think, a lot more national attention than the one in Colorado Springs and in Southern Colorado. How would you describe the scene here, its growth in the time that you've been at KRCC?
1: Uh, The local scene has exploded as far as I'm concerned. Um, One of the uh, pivot points to me uh, were a collection of musicians, and a, a fair amount of them were from Pueblo, who started Blank Tape Records. So they just did their own record label, and in this group of maybe 20 musicians, they were prolific, talented, and they swapped off members with each other. They supported each other with graphic art with um, live shows and uh, being on each other's records. And there was something about that time period that was a a renaissance Hmm. boost. And so much came from that. And that would have been Oh, I hope I'm not too off in my time here. I think that was the late 2000s, somewhere in there. And a lot of, you know, famous people have come from that. Um, Ineia Lujan, Haunted Wind Chimes, people that are now River, Arkansas, uh, Joe Johnson, Grant Sabin. They all helped each other and made quite a, a scene. Well, I think we
0: should leave with a little music from the Haunted Wind Chimes from Pueblo, Colorado. Before we do, what is your favorite Southern Colorado Live music venue, big or small.
1: Ooh, oh,
0: oh! Th- ah. this puts you in a very awkward place, doesn't it, Vicky? Well,
1: we don't want to anger anyone, however, I've seen some incredible shows at the Black Sheep just incredible shows in
0: Colorado Springs,
1: mm-hmm, in Colorado Springs, and you're in this great tiny little venue. And watching bands like The Foles or Father John Misty. And, you know, there's 200 people and you're one of them. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, there's a, a new place in Manitou, Lulu's Downstairs. And they're bringing in some incredible acts. So, hard to pick. One's a sitting venue, one's a standing venue as far as I'm concerned.
0: Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you, Ryan. This was fun.
0: Shall we haunt some wind chimes?
1: I think we should.
0: Everything
5: I want smell like cigarettes City is a and At home Hosting that wilderness Stumbling between Her satellites And jellyfish Following signs To the end of the
0: line And we're riding On the blue
5: bass
0: car Vicki Greger hosts 7 to 10 weeknights on KRCC in Colorado Springs. She's the station's Music coordinator Head to CPR.org for more of her favorite picks from Southern Colorado. Our week of Shows from Colorado Springs culminates Friday evening with a meet and greet. Because we'd like to meet you. Hear your story ideas. Learn about your connection to the Pikes Peak region in Southern Colorado. So share some grub with us. Maybe a glass. We'll be at Colorado Craft, 15 South Tejon Street from 4 to 7 Friday. Our colleagues here at KRCC will be there too. Again, Friday, 4 to 7 at Colorado Craft in Colorado Springs. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.